Okay, let's rebuild. Let's restore. Are you ready? Let's jump into the Word. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 15. Hey, just so you know, in the Hebrew Bible, and we're skipping chapter 3. I know all of you caught that because all of you are so dialed in and finely tuned and ready to keep going in this season. We're skipping chapter 3 because chapter 3 is nothing but a, they built this gate, they rebuilt this gate, they rebuilt this gate. So they go on a building spree. And they're building everything. They're building all of these gates, all of these walls. And then Nehemiah chapter 4, this is still in chapter 3 in the Hebrew Bible. The only reason to know that's important is because we skipped 3. And you need to know Sanballat's response is directly related to all the building that is happening. He's ticked off about it. He's frustrated about it. He's annoyed. So let's jump in. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 15. Oh man, I need to get a drink. It's what happens when worship is good, is I got nothing left. Cheers to great worship, right? Cheers to great worship. All right. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 15. Sambalat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends, and the Samaritan army officers. He, he flies into this rage, and make no mistake, he's about to ask five questions. And all five of these questions, in front of the audience that he's entertaining, has one sole purpose, to humiliate them out of doing what God wants. To shame them, to embarrass them, to humiliate them, to distract them. So he rolls into it. Verse 2, he says right in front of all of them, what is this bunch of poor Feeble Jews think they are doing. Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Do they really think they can do something with burnt stones? Do they really think the rubble of their past The rubble of their rebellion, the rubble of their continued failures, the rubble of their shame, the rubble of their embarrassment. Do they really think that these monuments that we've created of rubble that are monuments to the shame, destruction, and overtaking of them as a people, do they really think they can rebuild it? Come on, with with a lot of life in your soul, with every ounce of spirit that you have, what do we say back to that? Burnt stones? Come on, burnt stones? They build again. What do they do? They build again. What can God do with a pile of rubble? He can build it again. What can God do with a disaster? He can build again. What can God do with your shame of your past or the failure? He can build again. What does he do? He builds again. So Nehemiah, or so Sam Ballot, I'm sorry, asked the question. He asked five of them. The whole purpose was to shame them. Then his friends join in. Verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Man, he's got bad jokes, doesn't he? Who's, who do these Jews think they are building something out of rubble? Yeah, even if a fox walked on it, it would crumble, right? And all his little cronies like, yeah, so funny. All right. But listen, verse 4, what do you do when they shame you? What do you do when they embarrass you? What do, they, what do you do when in front of everybody they call out the sins of your past? 
What do you do in front of everybody? They, they challenge whether you'll even amount to anything again. What do you do when they're embarrassing you, they're shaming you, they're humiliating you, and they're tearing you down? Nehemiah 4.4, then I prayed. Then I prayed. Where do you go when everything's coming against you? To the throne room of grace. Where do you go when they're tearing you down? To the one who builds you up. Where do you go when they're mocking you to the one who has made you, to the one who's created you, who's crafted you in your mother's womb before the day you were born? Where do you turn? He turns to prayer. And he says, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. We're trying to do what you want, and they're just making fun of us. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads. And may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Messing with the wrong dude. Verse 5. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins. For they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. Verse 6. At last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city. Catch what they did. For the people had worked with enthusiasm, what do you do to smack the devil in the mouth when he, is, when he is beating you down, when he is shaming you, when he is mocking you? You pray and you keep on building. You just keep surging forward. Whatever that may look like, you give God the greatest offering that you have. In this case, a pile of burnt stones. But hey, it is. And what can he do with burnt stones? What, build again, there you are. You're coming along. What can he do with that offering? So they work with enthusiasm. Verse 7. But when Sambal and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. When they heard progress was going on, they were upset. They were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Interesting note, the people that have joined in with Sam Ballot are all of the neighboring regions of where the Jews are building. So when we say they're surrounded, they are completely surrounded. They don't have a way in. They don't have a way out. All that they have is this little space, and all the neighboring regions are coming together saying, you know what, let's kill them. Why not? Let's just wipe them off the face of the planet. So it says, but then Sambalad, they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. If you didn't get it the first time, I'll give you another chance. Verse 9, but we prayed. But we prayed. Do you see a theme here? What do you do when the trials come? What do you do when the challenges come? When you don't see it in the natural, you still have power in the supernatural. Can God shake the spirit of a king to turn him into your favor? Talked about that for weeks. Can God move somebody out of the way or into the way or in whatever way that you need to do what God has called you to do? Can he shake a spirit? Can he turn something around? Can he rebuild with burnt stones? He can. And even if you don't see it here, where do we go? We go to there. Because he's the only one who can provide peace. The only one who can provide comfort. The only one who has the power in the supernatural to impact my natural. So Nehemiah goes there again. To our God. He prayed to our God. And guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. 
Notice the turn in the narrative. We'll finish here later on today. In like 20 minutes, don't freak out. Then the people of Judah began to complain. Hmm, where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that before? What has that gotten them before? When they were leaving Egypt out of slavery and didn't have enough food, what did they do? When they ran out of water, when they were walking through the desert, what did they do? When they ran out of food again and they started saying maybe it would have been better to be in prison in Egypt than to be here in the wilderness and die of starvation, what did they do? When they were sick of earthly, when they were sick of God being their king and they left the promised land and they wanted an earthly king, what did they do? When Jeremiah came to them and Jeremiah was pleading with them to stop being rebellious or they were going to be overthrown and thrown into exile, what did they do? Over and over and over. And what does complaining do? Every single time we see them in their past complain, it leads to their destruction. So they start complaining. But man, God turns the narrative again. So let me catch up. Meanwhile, then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. And there's so much rubble to be moved. We got more burnt stones than we know what to do with. We'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. Verse 12, the Jews who lived near the, en- near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. They're surrounded. They're coming from all directions. Verse 13, so I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall and the explo- exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. Verse 14, man, you want to talk about a pep talk. All you coaches, this is your halftime pep talk, man. Down by a touchdown, it's a playoff game. This is the fourth quarter and you're down by a touchdown. You're on the goal line, two minutes left. What does he do? He looks over the situation. You got coach, see coach in his killer visor and some glasses. He's out there, he's got a clipboard out. And he's looking over the situation. It says, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and I said to them, man, this is good. Do not be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, what did they do? Got back to work. We all returned to our work on the wall. Okay. A lot of good stuff happening here. I'm going to bust it up into three portions. But before we do, we see something in this narrative. And I think it's important to point out how how we respond to challenges. And I love to share this story. I share it about once a year just to to give you our history and our roots of how we started the church. Um, Man, early on, we just started gathering people. Anyone that we could find that wanted to talk about church, I had breakfast, I had lunch, I had coffee. I talked to anybody and anyone who was interested in talking about the church. So we built this launch team, but we were missing one thing. It was a building to meet in. That's kind of important if you're a church, right? So we had this team, we had everybody, and we were talking with uh, the school district about renting the high school. And it looked really, really good. Everything was panning out. And then it went to a board meeting, and they voted and crushed us, like, immediately. It was, it was embarrassing. And, and I have no bitterness. I just know all of them and which way they voted and where they live and their socials and everything. No, 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 I'm just kidding. <laughs> 
I'm totally kidding. Hey, uh, to be honest with you, a, a no is as good as a yes. Come on, a no is as good as a yes. A no is God preparing something different, right? A no is, I would rather have a no and know that God is preparing than step into a yes that God never wanted me in. I would much rather have God say, nope, not the one, and let my feelings be hurt than me say, yes it is, kicking this door down, walk through, and God saying, well, my blessing's not there. My hand isn't there. My favor isn't there. So we get the no, and then I'm, I'm literally just sick to my stomach. I'm embarrassed because I, I kind of floated the, hey, we're going to get the high school idea, and it never panned out. And then I was up like in the middle of the night, like 3 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep, and I Googled meeting places in Huntsville, Texas, and this has never come up before. I've done this search a 100,000 times. I had looked at every venue that was available, never come up before. The first thing was the Loman Student Center. It was like 3 o'clock in the morning, but I knew who to call. I called my man, Frank Parker. I didn't call him at 3 o'clock in the morning. Come on, Frank is, Frank is the man. So I called Frank, and I said, hey, man, uh, just want to float an idea to you. It's the Loman Student Center. He was like, oh, man, yeah, great idea. Let's connect and talk. And they just had a new director come in, Rob. Rob's awesome. He's been incredible to work with. So we have these people. We all get together. And listen, when it's God, it's easy because when God's favor is on it, he opens the doors. He, uh, I always say, you want to know what God is leading to you to do? Follow the favor. Wherever that favor is, just keep going and keep going and keep going. So we followed the favor. We stepped into what God and we got into this building, right? And August 20, 2017, who is here for our launch? Come on, let me see. Give these legends a hand. We love you. August 20, 2017, we launched. And this was in the old ballroom. It's the, it's the white ballroom now. So we launched in the old ballroom. And when we're in there, there was 500 chairs down and we had 701 people show up. Beautiful disaster, right? We had 200 people in just standing room only. There were people everywhere. It was just, it was so electric. It was so lively. I loved it. And then right after that, August 24, 2017, Hurricane Harvey hit. August 25, 2017, that building flooded. The whole floor was flooded. There was no power in the Loman Student Center. My neighborhood flooded. Woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning to the Coast Guard banging on my door saying, we're closing the entrance to your neighborhood in the next 30 minutes. If you want to leave, you have to leave now or you won't get out. Water's rising. By the way, they're releasing the dam on the river, or on the lake. It's like, okay, uh, awesome. <laughs> woke up Anna, woke up the kids. We threw them all in the car. We took off and I wound up in Corsicana at the first hotel that was open and I was sitting there. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, couldn't sleep. You're noticing a pattern with pastors, right? We just stay up all night uh, worrying about everything that God's going to fix, right? So I'm up, I'm worried, and I'm thinking, one, house is going to be gone. Two, church is going to be gone. Who on earth is going to come? We, we had the greatest launch we could ever have, and then all of the sudden, the next week, we're canceling church. Hey, by the way, know you loved us. We're not meeting anymore. What are we going to do? thought it was over. I get emotional thinking not about that moment of, well, that, that suffering and that, that hurt and that just 
un- not understanding what's going on really, really formed me into where we're at now. But now I get emotional thinking about how good God is because the next weekend was Labor Day weekend. And I remember there was, there was pipe and drape just like this in that old ballroom. And I was just in the back and I was praying. I was saying, God, just, just do something. Just, I don't even know what's going to be here, what's going to show up. Walk through the pipe and drape and the place was packed. I said, okay, I hear you. You're here. You're here, and I know that you're here. And I was just talking with someone, and that, that season of launching, canceling, confusion, frustration, challenges, relaunching again, I'm so grateful for it because it puts something in our DNA that loves a good challenge. When we talk about our church, we're a people who love a good challenge. I almost get excited when Bree texts me and she's like, hey, uh, sound's not working. Hey, we're only acoustic today. Hey, we have no projection because I know what it does. It doesn't defeat us. It rallies us. We rise up in the middle and say, you know what? We got a challenge today, and we're going to fight this challenge today. And I was talking to somebody else about the lifespan of our church. And I mean, I think 2018 was the only year we didn't have something traumatic. And I'm sure if, if you thought of it, Chris is one of our church historians. If you think about it, I'm sure you're going you're to remember something. But we went through 2018, 2019, we moved into this building totally underestimated that move. That was a huge move to make that transition to get all of our stuff right. 2020, we all know that's the year the devil blessed, right? And then we go into 2021. We have a freeze at the beginning of the year. And every single year, there are these massive challenges. And every single year, it is sowing something into us. It's sowing a resilience into us. It's sowing a turn to prayer into us. It is sowing this fight, this righteous fight, this fight to see God move in spite of the difficulties. That's what Nehemiah is doing in chapter 4. He's going to a people that are broken, they're hurt, they're beat up, they're worn down, they're ready to quit, they're about to be killed, and he is saying, get up off your rear. It's time to fight. It's time to be victorious. They're mocking you, we'll pray. They want to kill you, we'll pray. We have a greater thing to fight for. Okay, four pieces to it, and we'll run through. Are you ready? Three people, one in the back. Praise God for you. Here we go. Number one, they had a greater commitment. They were committed to something greater than what existed on the surface. They had a deeper commitment. They had a vicious commitment about them. Let's go to Nehemiah 4, 4 through 5. But get me all fired up. I don't have any, any saliva left. All right. Nehemiah 4, 4 through 5. Then I prayed. Hear us, our God. Listen to the nature of his prayer. This is really important. We're going we're gonna to dive deep into something really quick. Hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. What does he pray for? May their scoffing fall back on their own heads. May they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins. For they have provoked you to anger. Hear me in front of the builders. There is something in the Old Testament passages. In the Psalms, you can see it in Abraham. You can see it in Joshua. Uh, You can see different moments. They're called imprecatory passages. Imprecatory means to pronounce judgment or to pronounce curse on an enemy, okay? And they're always about God 
and his glory. You, you see David throughout the Psalms. More Psalms are, are about sorrow and cursing than they are about rejoicing and worshiping. And you see him over and over. God, curse my enemies. Let the wicked fall to their wickedness over and over and over. Let me, let me take you to one really quick. And now follow me because we're going to build on something. But we're going to go to a place where you're going you're gonna to be like, wait, what? So just, just follow me through this. Numbers 25. Uh, this is an imprecatory passage just like this last one. God curse them, send them into captivity, take them out. Numbers 25. God calls the children of Israel to a place of purity. When he calls them to purity, you have the priest, you have Moses, and the leaders of the community outside recognizing how impure that they have been, how poorly they have done living a life of purity. So they, they're, they're there and they're weeping before God. And as they're weeping, this guy brings a Moabite woman into his tent. He, he's bringing her in to have sex with her. Right in front of the priests and everyone weeping about how impure that they've been. And so as he's bringing her into the tent, Phineas says, hang on one second. He grabs a spear. He goes into that guy's tent. And if you're familiar with the story, what does he do? Take a wild guess. Straight through both of them. Kills them both. Runs the spear through both of them. Now listen to how God responds. Then the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, and grandson of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites by being as zealous among them as I was. Wait, what? So I stopped destroying all of Israel as I had intended to do in my zealous anger. Now to him that I am, now tell him that I'm making a special covenant of peace with him. The one who ran a spear through two people who were disgracing God's temple is the only one that's as zealous as me. So tell him I'm going to make a covenant of peace with him. In this covenant, I give him and his descendants a permanent right to priesthood. Another translation says, I considered it to be attributed to him as righteousness. I will make him a permanent priest because he's willing to do this for his zeal for me. His God, he purified the people of Israel, making them right with me. What brought God glory? What caused God to look down and cease the destruction that he was bringing. Come on, it's not hard. What brought God glory in this moment? Killing those two. Killing those two. Let me give you another example. Abraham was willing to kill Isaac. We know the children of Israel, when Achan stole something from enemy camps and he hid it in his tent, when he hid it in his tent, Joshua searched the whole land for the one person, Joshua chapter 7 and 8, for the one person who had defiled God and stolen from him and disgraced his glory. And when he found it in Achan's tent, they took Achan and his family out, they stoned him, and they killed him. What is the message? What brought God glory? What made God see zeal? It was someone who was willing to do whatever it took to preserve the glory of God. Even if it meant take a life. Now listen, <laughs> don't go crazy on me, right? But, but what do we see? Over and over, it was someone who was willing to do whatever it took. The imprecatory passages are never about personal vengeance. They're always about preserving the glory of God. 
And what did God see as righteousness? Someone who was willing to do whatever it took to protect his glory, even if it meant taking the life of somebody else. Now, here's why this is a dangerous place to stop. Uh, I have a friend who has shared this passage before, and his dad was an elder in their church, and one of the pastors had done something inappropriate, been accused of something inappropriate, and this new believer in the church showed up at his house, banging on his door. He answers the door. This man is in tears. He walks in, and he says, I have to talk to you now. You're one of our elders. He sits down with the man, and my friend said he was just a kid. He snuck in, sat down at the table, and the man read him that passage, and he said, here's what I have to know. Is God calling me to kill our pastor? That's never the answer, by the way. God is never, ever calling you to do that. But let me, so what, what do we do with this? What do we do with Nehemiah's prayer? Curse them, throw them in prison, put them in captivity like I am. Do whatever you need to do to preserve your glory. What do we do with these passages? We turn to Jesus. Because what does Jesus do with this? As he does with everything, Jesus subverts it. He said, you have heard that it was said, Matthew chapter 5, punish, the punishment must match the offense. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. If they strike you, turn the other cheek to them as well. What does he say? You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Now you're going to understand Peter pulling out a sword when they were getting ready to arrest Jesus and swinging to cut off the centurion's head and missing and cutting off his ear. He thought he was doing what God wanted. He was set out to protect the righteousness of God. He thought this is what we do. We kill for the glory of God. We do whatever it takes for the glory of God. Yet, what did God do to Peter? He rebuked Peter. He said, Peter, don't do that. What does God do for us? Luke 9, 23 through 24. What does Jesus say? Then the crowd said to the then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross. And follow me. Literally, die to yourself. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. In other words, he subverts the whole understanding of protecting the glory of God. And he says, I no longer need you to kill for my glory. I just want to know if you'll die for it. I just want to know if you'll die to yourself to protect my glory. I just want to know if my glory is so important to you. I don't need you to kill for it anymore. But I need you to die to yourself for it. Will you die to your desire to stop looking at things you want to on the internet to preserve my glory? Will you die to your selfishness to just protect my glory? Make no mistake about this. In the Old Testament, in the imprecatory passages, and even in the New Testament, both of them are, they're both suggesting, would you go to the absolute extreme to protect my glory? In one, it's would you kill to protect my glory? In the other, it's would you be willing to die to yourself for it? Would you be willing to lay, when we talk about a greater commitment, that's the commitment that Nehemiah had. A commitment to do whatever it takes to protect the glory of God. 
Let me recap this in case you missed a part of it. I am not telling you to leave here and kill for the glory of God. I am telling you to leave here and die to yourself for the glory of God. That is, that is when you are living in a place of such deep submission that you're willing to say, my life for your glory. It was the same with Nehemiah. It was the same with Abraham. It was the same with Joshua. It has always been about God's glory. The method has just changed. It's no longer I go kill for it. It's just am I willing to die to myself for it, which is probably harder anyway. It's easy to point fingers and blame. It's a whole lot harder to die to self. We, we miss this in Western Christianity. We, miss, we are so concerned with protecting our partisan rights that we just let the glory of God fall by the wayside. He is saying the only thing you're willing to give up your life for is to protect my glory. And here's what it looks like to give up your life. Die to your sinful nature. Die to your anger. Die to your frustration. Die to your lying. Die to your gossip. Die to these things daily. And you will preserve my glory. How does Nehemiah rebuild again? How does he take a city of rubble and rebuild? He's willing to do whatever it takes to protect God's glory. How do you rebuild your life? You're just just willing to do whatever it takes to protect God's glory. Whatever it takes to protect God's glory. Whatever I need to get out of me to protect God's glory, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever I need to fix about me to protect God's glory, that's what I'm going to do. Whoever I need to rid myself of to protect God's glory, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever I have to do to protect His glory, I'm going to do it. Amen. Let's jump in. Number two. Are we okay? Are we okay? I didn't tell you to go kill for God's glory. Looking at me like I just went off the rails. Watch, they're going to come to you like, hey, online went off right after you said kill for God's glory. So (laughs) we got a problem. Greater action. He had a greater action. Catch this. Right after every single one of his prayers, what does he do? After every single one. He prays in verse 5, God, they're mocking me. Humiliate them. Throw them into captivity. Have judgment on them. And then Nehemiah 4, 6, at last the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city. For the people had worked with enthusiasm. They asked, they prayed, and then they took action. Nehemiah 4, 9 says, but we prayed to our God and guarded. We didn't just pray and sit back. We prayed and we took action and we guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. You're catching something with the prayers of Nehemiah, right? In Nehemiah 1 verse 4, he prays and he gets the report that Jerusalem's in ruins. As he prays, what does he do next? He goes to the king. The king says, why are you so upset? And what does he do? He prays. And after he prays, what does he do? He takes action, and he tells the king, and he goes to Israel to rebuild the city. What do we see over and over? Nehemiah is a man who prays, and his prayers are accompanied by action. James 1.22 says, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. you got to be a doer. Otherwise, here's James' take on it. You're fooling yourselves. You're fooling yourselves. 
God's not going to answer you in your despair with a divine miracle when you lack human effort. God, I need a job, but I'm going to play video games all day long. You're fooling yourself. God, I need my marriage fixed. Still being a jerk to your wife. It's not going to happen. God is not going to swoop in and rescue your lack of effort. What does James say? You're just fooling yourself. You're absolutely fooling yourself. Don't listen to it. Don't hear it right now. Do whatever it takes to protect God's glory and then walk out of here and dive straight back into the same garbage. Fooling yourself. What did Nehemiah, he had an action to his faith. He had an action to his prayers. Psalm 1 verse 3 says, they are like trees planted along the riverbank. He's talking about the righteous, bearing fruit in each season. Their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. You got to do something to prosper. You got to do something to prosper, to bear fruit, to see God move in the middle of it. You guys ready for a preacher's joke? Man, I think we need one. It's a little tense in here right now, right? Let me give you an old preacher's joke. There was this man whose neighborhood was flooding and he was on top of his house. And as he was on top of his house, he was praying, God, save me. And a guy came by in a rowboat. He rode by and he said, hey, bro, let's put him in Louisiana. You want to put him in Louisiana? Yeah, this sounds like it. We'll name him Boudreaux, okay? So Boudreaux's on top of the roof and he's there and it's flooding around him and he's on top of the roof. And a guy in a rowboat comes in and he says, hey, Bubba, hop in. I'll save you. And the guy says, no, don't worry about it. I'm praying to God and he's going to save me. I have faith. I'm praying out to him. So then another guy, the waters keep rising. Another guy comes in a motorboat and he pulls up and he says, hey, Boudreaux, hop in. I'll save you. And Boudreaux says, no way, man. I'm praying to God and I got faith. He's going to save me. The waters keep rising. And then all of a sudden, this man in a helicopter comes by. And the helicopter gets above him, drops down a ladder and says, Hey, man, jump up, climb up. I'll save you. And Boudreaux says, Hey, man, don't worry about a thing. I'm praying about it. I've got faith. God's going to save me. And so the helicopter takes off. The waters rise. And Boudreaux drowns. And Boudreaux dies. He walks into heaven all sloshy wet in his Crocs and jeans and everything else. We are in Louisiana after all, right? And he gets up there, and he walks up before God, and he says, God, I don't understand. I prayed. I had faith. I kept speaking about it. I kept declaring it. God, why didn't you save me? And God said, Boudreaux, I sent you a rowboat, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more do you expect from me? You've got to take action. You've got to take action. You can't just sit around and expect God to do it. He's going to open a door, but who's got feet? You've got to walk through it. What do we see over and over and over? Now listen, you don't neglect faith for action. I'm not preaching a faith by action, but what I'm saying is exactly what Nehemiah modeled. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to work with enthusiasm. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to keep building. I'm going to pray, and when the opportunity walks up, I'm going to march into that king's office. I'm going to tell the king what I want. I'm going to pray, and when he says go, I'm going to ask for supplies, and I'm going to ask for pardons from other governors, and I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to rebuild this place. What is the pattern over and over and over? What does James say? Don't just be hearers be doers what do we hear we ask and then we act 
I'm going to ask God for it, and then I'm going to act on it. And I'm going to do whatever he prompts me to act on. I'm going to ask, and I'm going to act. I'm going to ask, and I'm going to act. That's what Nehemiah does over and over and over. All right, let's wrap this up. Greater motivation. Oh, man, we got to get into character here. You want to be Jews for a minute? Come on. You want to be Jews for a minute? We've been in Louisiana. Now we're in Israel. Come on, let's be Jews. Right? We're a bunch of Cajuns. Now we're Jews. All right, let's be Jews for a minute. Let me walk through this. Let me, let me get the word here, too. Okay, this, we got to set the stage for this. Imagine you are Nehemiah, right? And you've got your people building, and you guys are around. I don't, I don't feel comfortable being Nehemiah. Let, let's just say, Nehemiah's here, and Nehemiah's rallied you, and he's got you ready, and he's got you fired up, and you're building. And then all of a sudden, Samballot comes, and he tries to humiliate you in front of everybody. And instead, we say, God, why don't you humiliate Samballot? We'll keep rolling. Lock them up. Let us keep going. And the enthusiasm rises. And you keep building. And you keep throwing that wall together. And then resistance comes again. And they're really frustrated this time. And they want to kill you. So you pray again. And then you put guards outside that are protecting everything, everywhere. So now we're protected. They want to kill us. We got guards at every door. And we keep building. But then all of a sudden something happens. Y'all are getting tired. Y'all are grumbling. Y'all are worn out. Y'all are sick of all the work and you see all the burnt stones and you just don't know what to do. And then, oh, by the way, you catch wind that they want to kill you. And then, oh, by the way, one of our neighbors at the building over comes running through here and he says, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but there are armies assembled and they are ready to slaughter you. And they're coming. And they want to see you dead. There's a whole lot more of them than there are you. Nehemiah 4, 14. Then as I looked over the situation, now you're there. I'm looking over. The, no, no, I'm not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is looking over. I'm not worthy to be Nehemiah. Nehemiah is looking over the situation, and he is seeing my people are tired, my people are worn out. There are armies that are surrounding us that want to kill us, and we've just got this progress rolling, and it seems like it's all falling apart. Then as I looked over the situation... I called together the, the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Do you hear the life that he injects into them? Don't be afraid. He gives them three things when he's finishing this up. He says, don't be afraid. I know they want to kill us. I know they want to take us out. I know they're surrounding us, but don't you be afraid. We're doing the Lord's work here, and we'll do anything to protect his glory, so don't be afraid. Second thing that he says, remember the glory of God. Remember the goodness of God. We have a great God. We have a mighty God. We have an awesome God. And then how does he finish? He says, fight Fight for your brothers, fight for your sisters, fight for your family, fight for your homes, fight for your wives. Whatever you do, have this spirit that rises up in you. I'm going to fight for the glory of God in my home. I'm going to fight for the glory of God with my kids. We talk about this all the time. I used to talk to, to Drew about this all the time. He'd be loading out out there, and these kids would be running up and down the halls, and he'd always say, one day these little knuckleheads are going to be running this place. That's what we're fighting for. That's what we're building for. That's what we're championing here. We want that day to come. Look, I'm not, I'm not fighting for me right now. I'm fighting for a five-year-old, for a 10-month-old, and an eight-year-old, wherever the world she's at. I'm fighting for them. 
I want this to be their place. Fighting for yours. Fighting for your homes, for your kids. I want, them to be, I want it to be them that have that. That's what our motivation is. Notice in verse 13, how did he group them as guards? Grouped them as families. Isn't that interesting? He said, that family right there is fighting to protect that door. That family right there is fighting to protect that door. Because what is the greatest motivating factor on earth that you can have? Fighting for your family. Fighting for the glory of God to be preserved for future generations. So he says, that family, go there. That family, go there. And together, we're going to not be afraid. We will fear nothing. We will remember the goodness of our God. And we will build something for years and years to come. And guess what? He did it. Incredible. He did it. He had a greater motivation. We have got to become motivated to preserve the glory of God in our homes. We have to become motivated to preserve the glory of God in our families. We have to become motivated to preserve the glory of God in our children. And that means we're willing to do whatever it takes to preserve it. And you know what? Whatever it takes is you dying to yourself. Dying to yourself. Saying, I, will, I will set myself aside for the glory of God. Because I know for years to come, it's going to make an impact.